Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Today I'm joined by two guests, Amy Edmondson and Kieran White. Amy Edmondson is a Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She's been recognized by the biannual Thinkers 50, Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011, and most recently was ranked number three in 2019. That is number three in the world. Her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth, offers a very practical guide for organizations who are serious about success in the modern economy. And indeed, it has been translated into 11 languages. And that offers the main topic of our conversation today, psychological safety and the interactions between that and other areas. We're also joined by Kieran White. He was a former finance executive who retrained as a psychotherapist, specializing in group dynamics almost 20 years ago. One area he specializes in is in working with executive teams to help them align their collective effort with organizational strategy. He is the founder and global CEO of People Talking, which provides consulting and training throughout Asia Pacific and the Americas. And in that, they partner with Amy, the application of psychological safety in organizations. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. We're challenged by the fact that when we talk about hybrid workplaces, the boundary between work and personal life is minimized. And that will sometimes mean we will find ourselves having to talk about things that would in, in the past not have been appropriate to talk about. So we're going to navigate this thoughtfully and we're going to need to respect and care about each other to do this well. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is our leadership diet? Amy and Kieran, welcome to Leadership Diet. Great to see you both here today. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. It's great to have you both here. We we don't normally do three or four people interviews in this podcast, so this is a this is a first for us. So I'm looking forward to seeing how we go between Maine and Sydney and where else in between. I'm sure we'll have some fun with that. We're talking about psychological safety. We're talking about structural dynamics. We're talking about a whole lot of stuff. So maybe Amy, we'll, let's start with you. the The term psychological safety is very much associated with you and some of the writings and research you've done. Let's start with the obvious: what is it, and what is it not? It's a sense that you can be yourself probably simply put, but more precisely, it's an expectation that you can speak up at work, especially. I think that probably applies to all sorts of other venues as well. But in the workplace, people naturally hold back. So psychological safety is that experience when you feel this might not be easy, but I'm going to speak up. I'm going to offer my suggestion. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to admit a mistake and and all the rest, because that's what we do here. And what's the link between that and, say, trust or indeed vulnerability? They're all in a similar kind of area, aren't they? They are. You know, I could probably draw all sorts of Venn diagrams and find lots of overlapping territory. But trust traditionally is a word that refers to a person's expectations about another entity, usually a person, but often a company or an entity of some kind. It relates to your expectation about whether that person will follow through on what they said or whether they're capable of doing what they said they would do. Whereas psychological safety describes a climate, right? An environment where we collectively, so it's more descriptive of a group, an emergent property of a group, whereas whereas trust is more about an individual's perception of some other, usually individual. So Kieran, does that mean then that this is all about being nice to each other? Or is is there more to it than just that? Oh, it's far more than being nice. 
And although for me, you know, the experience when it shows up in the room is that there is, you know, respect and that it's very much around creating a space where we can care deeply for what it is that we are trying to achieve together. And it's, you know, the feeling is that this is so important and so complex that if we can harness the resources amongst us and harness the collective intelligence, we can achieve great things together. Mm-hmm. And, and what I love about that is it, it evokes an accountability where we care deeply and challenge directly, that, that it's beyond the comfort zone. You know, and the learning zone, is, as Amy would call it, you know, before I, I came across and, and fell in love with Amy's kind of, you know, teachings and the way she talks about this work, the way I related to that zone beyond the comfort zone is, well, what's, what's outside the comfort zone? It's the, it's the discomfort zone. <laughs> you know, yeah. there, there's a part of it which just doesn't feel super easy and super nice, yeah. but that's the theater of change. Yeah. You know, they, they coexist in the same moment. Gee, this is tough and we're exactly where we need to be. Yeah to solve what it is that we're trying to solve. So far beyond nice, Pori, but I, I can appreciate why you, you know, you've, you've checked in on that because I think it's a, it's a common mistranslation or in a way a, a convenient translation, which is let's create a space where, oh, gee, it's, it's a relief. It's, it's nice. And, and that can be a, a convenient mistranslation uh, unconsciously. What if we make a distinction between nice and kind? Mm. Nice is often interpreted in the workplace as, you know, saying nice things, not truthful things. I'm not going to say I don't like your project because, mm-hmm. or your project isn't good because that wouldn't be nice, but kind might be, or, mm-hmm. which is why, actually why I like that you started, Kieran, with respect, right? Because it's, I respect you enough to say, eh, I don't think that's really going to fly. Yeah. I think I see some improvement opportunities here. And that's not what we do when we're being nice, which is perfectly fine in social settings, I would argue, but maybe not the best thing in, in the workplace or in families. I love that word, I respect you enough. That word enough is a real signal to, because I respect you enough, we can have a conversation. Because I respect you enough, I want to tell you some truths that maybe other folks are, are not telling you, or at least the way I see it anyway. Whereas yeah. I think is I respect you, I respect you or I'm being nice to you means it's a full stop and then we're stopping the conversation. Yeah. Peter Hawkins uh, from the UK often says, if teams start with, I trust you enough that you'll do your job as best as you can, then we can have a conversation about the times when we're not. And, and it, it allows that space to have it. So that, that word enough is, is a great one. The idea of benefit of the doubt, I presume that's linked to the notion of respect and, and, and kindness. I think so. I mean, we all, I, I think human beings tend to fail to recognize the doubt, right? You know, we sort of think, oh, we, we, we think we see reality. I think that I've sized you up and I'm accurate in my sizing up. And so we fail to give each other the benefit of the doubt that we so easily give ourselves. Karen, why is this important now? And, and, and did you have any stories you want to share with us as to why this is important or how, why it's been helpful? Yeah, look, my own kind of, take on, on that, that question, Porig, was uh, I think that to date, uh, there's been too much focus on kind of individuals working on their own effectiveness and, and drawing on what they know to solve the challenges that they're facing from an individual team or organizational context. And I think the last few years and the pandemic, you know, is just a magnification of, of uh, that that's uh, an outdated mental model and practice model, what I mean by the, you know, the way we think about things and the way we show up. And I think the, the key now is that we have leaders and organizations with an understanding and a mental model that it's, it's about harnessing collective intelligence right. and releasing resources in those around us. And only through you know, that way of being and leading can we tap into the wisdom that is required to solve the most complex challenges. So that's kind of, you know, my focus is, is often around the, the challenges that require, you know, diversity of thought, of experience, of background, that require contact, that require teaming, which is a contact sport. You know, if we want diversity to become an expansion of the system rather than a contraction, we're going to bump into each other. Yep. And that releases resources when we do it well. 
And I think that that's where leaders are, are challenging because they're drawing on old mental models and, and ways that they've been taught to actually address challenges that require them to think and act and create space for others very differently. And they're playing catch up. And I think that's that's kind of why it's so needed, you know, now is that paradigm shift around it's about the collective so leaders still absolutely have an individual responsibility and accountability but it's a shift that it's what, what can I do as a leader to create the space for we to be most effective rather than I. Did you think the last year of our global experience has accelerated that notion that it needs to be a collective conversation? It's been talked about for a while, but I'm not sure we've done a lot about it. But the last, particularly six months, it seems to be a whole lot more action towards that collective harnessing of intelligence. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's really magnified it. I think human systems models and psychology and approaches has also come to the fore about, you know, relational consciousness rather than kind of, you know, I, I think... It's more around relationship and we and team and, and human connection. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a lot more to the surface. And, and in the organizations that I'm talking to, there's this shift compared to a few years ago where there might be a convincing or an exploration around the need to think about human systems mm-hmm. and the importance of mobilizing groups and teams in, in service of executing on our business strategy, to, to use those terms. It's just it's far more on the surface now. So I think, you know, the pandemic has accelerated that, but I think it started to happen before then where there was an awareness of just the complexity and and VUCA world needed leaders to set teams up very differently. Mm -hmm. What what do you think, Amy? Would would you kind of add or build on any of that? I I have a sense that we have been talking about the VUCA world for a long time. Certainly I use that term in the fearless organization. But we didn't really feel it or appreciate it in a visceral way until this pandemic. It's the first time, in my memory anyway, that we had just an experience of from one week to the next, you're in a completely different situation experience, being sent home to work or being sent in to work in an essential job that you would otherwise not be doing, right? So there's there's just all of that disruption, all of that amazing unpredictability that led us to realize how dependent we are on each other. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still sort of coming to terms with how dependent we are on each other. And what does that mean? Right? What does that mean for the kinds of behaviors that we have to exhibit and the kind of mindset that we have to have we really depend on each other and we really depend on our ability to learn together and problem solve together. It's a very different way of operating than the industrial era mindset led us to understand or believe in. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, as we're recording this, Kieran and I will, are living this. We're in lockdown in Sydney at the moment. And you know, it's just really interesting watching the various state premiers trying to deal with you know, the Delta variant in a different way than we dealt with the previous variants of COVID and just realizing that, you know, even as only a few weeks ago, the way we dealt with that is no longer in vogue. Like we got, we got to figure out new ways all of a sudden because it's not all changed again. And trying to bring the population along that journey of we are all on an unknown journey here is so difficult and, and so VUCA-like, but we're, 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 we're all experiencing it for the first time. Kieran, is this a good segue for into the Fonterra story? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and before just sharing that story, I think, it's a pickup point and what we've talking about is, is around structural dynamics. And I think it, it's a model, David Cantor's lifetime work, and it's a model for how communication works or doesn't work in human systems. So, you know, how fitting. And it also looks at behavior um, when it's the day-to-day or low stakes and also high stakes or behavior in crisis, which again, I think is, is particularly relevant. And here's a story to bring alive why we use structural dynamics and psychological safety in a real client story. So this is, this is a few years ago, and this is regional Victoria in a major capital build, you know, nine figures. So, you know, hundreds of millions. And it was a capital project where Fonterra were looking at a time frame that they, had, they hadn't previously delivered in. And they were also facing some complexity, therefore, around fast decisions not the same timeframes to explore and have data. So a high reliance on transparency, decision-making. And it was clear that psychological safety needed to be established early and consistently. 
because of the pace of the project, the need for decisions to be made quickly. And also what was a factor was that we had some people coming onto that project who were coming off a previous project. So energy management and sustainability of people is something that I also have particular interest in around what an environment that is high in psychological safety does for people's energy compared to an environment that's low in psychological safety. What does it do for people's energy and fatigue and and stress? So it was clear from the outset that we needed to design in scaffolding conditions for the human systems and people. We had teams coming together and forming quickly from multiple organizations. So Fonterra, Tetra Packets, key providers were being kind of flown in to create teams to manage and lead this project over, you know, 12 to to 18 months. And structural dynamics as a model for how communication works or doesn't work also equips individuals with an understanding of their, their, their approach to communication. So what we did was we looked at establishing, you know, regular sessions for those teams, completing their individual counter profiles, It gave them really good sight of their communication preferences. Every human system develops patterns that help it, hold it back, or hurt it, consciously or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Myself and my wife, myself and my kids, me and my team, any team, any human system develops patterns that help it, hold it back, or hurt it, consciously or otherwise. And structural dynamics is particularly effective in, in teaming but it's beautiful in the forming stage of teams. So when teams, before they create the pattern that either helps it, hold it back or hurt it, you know, what if we can, and we did in this instance, equip teams with an understanding. It's like they put on glasses. They can see the pattern that they are likely to create in in the dynamic. Any topic they explore, you know, I think we're trained to be tracking the content of what it is that we're exploring. How we explore it has a material impact on the the, the content, regardless of what that is. So helping teams um, develop a toolkit and a way of seeing and managing how they have conversations enables and enable those teams to form teaming as an activity, not something in an organizational chart, that enabled them to move through that project with a high degree of um, kind of teaming. They delivered the project ahead of budget um, and, and time. So it was very, very successful and, and organizations have been bringing, you know, the approach and the ideas of, of structural dynamics and psychological safety back into their organizations so it was particularly effective at that way. Decisions were made faster because there was just a lot of open conversation, transparency, and engagement around difference. And some of the things that I particularly appreciate, because my own background is often as a, you know, as a clinical psychotherapist and, and around you know, energy management and human systems that can pass the test of time, there's a lovely story to kind of share where at the very first session of this project, we were engaging with some of these key leaders, you know, brilliant in their field. And we just did a simple scaling question of zero to 10, which was what, what energy did they have as they were, you know, coming into this project, having come off one and facing into a, a long-term project. And, you know, one of the guys said, oh, you know, when you use a zero to 10, expecting a number to be chosen somewhere in there. And it was, you know, oh, about minus two. And some others were kind of three, four. And it was just this, then, as, you know, as, as a group, we were able to talk about that. But why I remember it now is I, I, think it's, I think it's really important in these times where we are in a pandemic. And this example is so relevant where there's extra challenges and stress on people to get through and avoid fatigue and burnout and be at, be at their best. I think that's kind of one thing. But when we finished the project, going back to the Fonterra story, when we finished the project, Checked in at that same level, we had, you know, quite a significant ending phase. But this particular guy, you know, was saying, oh, energy, maybe about a seven or an eight. From minus two. And it was, how come you've got more energy at the end of a incredibly complex project where you've been away from family than you did at the start? And he was going, well, it was about the relationships, the environment, what it felt like to do this together. 
you know, that just evokes a, a lot for me around, you know, wonderful story, great business impact, you know, critical in so many ways, delivered ahead of schedule, on budget. But what was so important and, and why, you know, Fonterra designed in the scaffold and the work was they needed to make sure that people moved through this project, supported, and that the environment worked for the individuals, you know, and worked for the organization. And that was, you know, really came through at the end where people were just reflecting on the joy and the sense of achievement through an environment that is high in psychological safety that enables people to do what I think we're really designed at a a very deep level to do, which is achieve great things together. And if we do that in a way where we feel respected for our difference, for our contribution, we have up energy. And I love that about what we're talking about here. I love that story, Kieran, on, on so many levels. And then maybe we might double down a few of those ideas you've raised there. But the notion of really, you know, the first thing you said was releasing resources. How, how, how do we actively release resources? And it sounds that like these folks together coming into a new project in a rather depleted, were able yeah. to work together in such a way that was really conducive to them finding the best in each other and therefore releasing resources that achieved all the business outcomes. That's yeah. got to be the whole case and dies for this whole argument we're making today. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, you've got me going there because, you know, I, I can't help but also think about, you know, even Keegan's work in, in adult development and where his and others, you know, the work, I think it's the research is clear in lots of ways where a lot of people are heavily influenced by the environment that they're in. So think about that and then think about, well, what if we create the environment for people to shine? The old thinking was of create self-actualized individuals where they can choose to find their voice regardless of the context they are in, right? They can, they can really tap into their best regardless of what's going on around them. And the, I think the reality is that, that I know there are times where I really am influenced by the environment that, that I'm in. So I think the shift is if we can focus on releasing resources, there's so much spent on building capability at an individual level. When often there's a constraint in the system, there's low psychological safety. People haven't yet realized how to create a space where we can release the unreleased resources in the, in the system. That's a big shift that I'm very, very passionate about is equipping leaders with the understanding and practice models to release resources. And I know that's a capability build that, you know, leaders need to develop the capability for that. But I'm very passionate about that area. I have so many questions. Can, can I ask a couple? Jump in. This is a free-for-all today. First of all, just from the project, the substantive point of view, yeah. what were they getting done? Because I know it was strategic and you know, really business critical and intensive and involved partners, you know, people in the other players in the ecosystem. But how would you best describe the output or the problem they solved? Yeah. So it basically was doubling the processing capacity for, for milk. So, you know, new dryer, so new, significant new capital equipment um, mm-hmm. added onto a plant in Stanhope as it was operational. So massive capital, capital build and a key consideration through all of that capital build was obviously, you know, the safety element, um, which is kind of, you know, critical. So their, their goal was within a, not previously achieved time frame, complete that capital build, which was a major extension on processing capacity, which was needed at the time. How many participants did you have in that project? Yeah, we directly worked with, with them five teams, ranging from kind of eight to eight to 14. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were basically all the leaders of teams of supervisors throughout the project. One more, last one, not about the project, but in general, because we met um, because of structural dynamics. I, I do teach it as best I can in my classroom at Harvard Business School. And I'm really curious how long it takes people to get good at what I'll just call lightly coding different moves. Right. So when someone is doing a move or an oppose or a bystand, or how long does it take people before they're fluent or at least fairly good at seeing those things play out real time. You know, and and I think it takes quite a bit of time. I think that one of the benefits of working with 
multiple leaders and teams concurrently is establishing the common language accelerates that experiential learning. And, you know, I, I think that also what helps with that is actually the framing of structural dynamics. It's kind of like, you know, what is it? What is it not? You know, that, that question, what, what I love starting it with, it's actually a model for living. So, so at the heart of structural dynamics, it's a model for living relationally. And what do we notice happens in relationships that can help us be more effective, be more connected, the move, the follow, the oppose, the bystand. It takes time to understand the differences. Few, a few months before that can you know, really be effectively understood, you know, the, the, the mastery of it is mm-hmm. around high stakes behavior where... You know, if we picture a, you know, a funnel where it's, it's, it's easy to make a move, which is propose, follow, build on others, you know, when we're moving into high stakes, behavioral repertoire, you know, shrinks and that's where behavior in crisis can show up. So that's where I think it takes a lot longer for the mastery of what's present in the room and what's absent in the room to become something that people can really work with. In Harvard, what are you noticing, Amy, as regards to the, the take? No, it's just, I think it's challenging. One thing we did this year, my colleague Joe Fuller and I, was have, oh, well, we asked each other, and then we also had our students sort of look at the script for 12 Angry Men. I don't know if you both know that Movie, yeah. uh, film with Henry Fonda, right? And it's a brilliant script. And it's, of course, a, a script of 12 men in a room pretty much the whole movie is those 12 men as acting as a jury, deliberating clearly a very important decision about whether to uh, judge the defendant guilty for, of murder. It's a very, uh, you know, it's a very apt situation. Talk about high stakes here. It's not easy to, I mean, certainly Joe and I didn't have perfect agreement, but as we talked through what was happening, the disagreements really based on different understandings of what the person was doing in that move, which were understandable. I mean, it's a script, right? It's not real. It's not real life. My sense is the students understand intellectually what this is, why it matters, you know, why it's really important. And then in fact, it's a, it's a beautiful document to see how the Henry Fonda character, the architect, as it were, was able to, lead the group toward deeper meaning by making different kinds of moves at different times. And I guess where, why I asked you is that I find this to be quite skillful, not just the Henry Fonda character, but even as a, as a person who's been thinking about these things for a long time, doing it real time is pretty daunting, you know, meaning, and, and partly because as you said, when the stakes are high, your, your cognition shrinks a little bit. Yeah, you know, and, and it, it, it's really interesting and kind of it's making me think about something else that I think that, that, that shows up in the room that, that really helps. So we can, we can look at instances of is it a move, is it a follow, and we can almost look at decoding. What, what is it, what is it not? And there's a, there's a technical kind of, you know, skill there um, to notice, for example, that there's just lots of people, you know, proposing things and nobody's building on each, each other's comments and suggestions. The thing that I really notice, and, and uh, when we're training and, and, and accrediting people, so there's a, you know, 70%, you know, kind of is, is it pass rate. So it's never beyond that, that you know, the, the masters of structural dynamics would, would often disagree on some elements. So it is really hard to be precise. However, when, we're, when we equip teams and members of teams with the model, ask them to create deliberate pause where they're noticing what's happening and how they're having the conversation, what's present and what's absent. Regardless of their degree of kind of accuracy in diagnosing, what it designs in is the bystand. So it actually designs in the system noticing itself and pausing. And they then have a conversation around how are we going about communicating and what impact is that having on the topic that that we're, we're exploring. That alone is a fantastic intervention on, on the system because it's helping it think system and pause and reflect together on how are we going about talking and connecting and are we proposing enough? Are we kind of stuck in bystand? 
But designing in and asking them to deliberately reflect on that does evoke the bystand, which in of itself has a significant impact on the team's ability just to have those conversations. Hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Please pause and just take a chance to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for this episode. Very much appreciate you doing so. Folks, I want to kind of segue the last five minutes into a question that will bring us back to answering it. One of the questions I had for us was how you guys met to then segue into structural dynamics and, and psych safety. But I might just segue into a question and then we can allow you to repeat what you just said here. I know you both work together in terms of Asia Pacific and Kieran and Amy work together with, with clients around this area on psych safety as well as structural dynamics. How did you meet? And what is structural dynamics and then the link between that and psych safety? And maybe Amy, I might start with you and then Kieran, you jump in afterwards. Well, we met through David Campbell, who was a mutual friend and, and colleague of both of ours. You know, I knew David through his work in small group dynamics, which is just broadly speaking, my area of interest as well. And this overlap between small group dynamics and learning, organizational learning, how organizations and teams learn is something that we shared. He was a very, uh, very impressive uh, thinker and a colleague and, and also friend of one of my advisors, Chris Ardris, from whom I learned a lot. Um, so we, we, we met through this mutual friend, right? This mutual uh, connection. And maybe through the course was how we initially just, how we actually first met each other because my colleague, Joe Fuller, and I went to talk to David about our hope of bringing this into the classroom. But our, our circles have certainly overlapped for a long time. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other side of that, I've been kind of working with David Cantor for, you know, it's probably about 10 years or a little bit, you know, more than, more than that now. And, at the phase where met Amy and, and, and Joe and David, actively working with David around legacy and kind of, you know, stewardship of his work beyond his, his lifetime. You know, he passed away just recently. So been working with him along with some others around, you know, the legacy of his work and ensuring that it passed the test of time. Uh, he was still incredibly active and connecting with people like Amy and, and Joe. So it was a move that David made around around connecting us with that in mind around structural dynamics and psychological safety bodies of work, how complementary, you know, that they are in so many ways. And that then became, you know, something that we've been been working on. But it really was around, you know, legacy and and structural dynamics is nearly as as well known. So that was where we we met in Boston, you know, two or three years ago uh, in that little room with, with David. David's book is uh, Reading the Room, and it's, it's an extraordinary tome of knowledge and, and insight. But Kira, maybe if you could, could you give us like a, a quick insight into what actually is structural dynamics and, and what's the interplay with psychological safety or fearless organizations? And, and how, how do you think about that? So, you know, for me, structural, at the heart of structural dynamics, it's, it's a model for living, you know, relationally. And the goal is to develop functional awareness or, you know, relational awareness in low stakes and high stakes. So when you integrate the practices of structural dynamics, that's kind of the goal, that you become more relationally aware. And at the heart of structural dynamics is the four-player model, which is a lot of David's research around that in conversations, there are four actions, four vocal acts that, when present, contribute to a healthy system over time. And when some are absent, there, there are consequences. So, you know, the move, the follow, the oppose, and the bystand are the four vocal acts at the heart of, you know, the four-player model. And, you know, the move is, you know, I think we should talk about the strategy over the next two years, right? So it's proposing, it's initiating. Mm-hmm. And the follow is, I think that's a great idea. Let's explore that. So it's a build. It's more other-oriented behavior. Let's schedule it. Let's put it on the calendar. Yeah, yeah let's schedule it. So, so it's like a follow, a completion. I'm going to help make that happen. Other oriented behavior, it's a build. For example, if, if we look at teams where everybody's kind of proposing and nobody's, you know, building and completing. Right. So I'm building on your idea as opposed to putting a new idea onto it. Yeah. So, you know, the follow is, is critical from a validation, completion and see it through perspective. 
you know, the oppose the voice of correction. You know, how important is that around? I've got a, I've got a different view. I'm not, I'm not comfortable. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more. So it's the voice of difference or, or correction coming from a place of, of, of integrity and at the heart of it is, is respect. And then the bystand is the voice of, of perspective, kind of on the, on the periphery, bridging, connecting, summarizing, and can change the way people look at the conversation. So those four, when present in a conversation, contribute to a very healthy system. And reading the room, David's book, and how we work with structural dynamics is we help teams be curious and be, have the toolkit to see what's present and what's absent in this conversation right now. So again, getting them to be listening and noticing on, on two levels, not only at the content, but also how is the conversation happening? Who's involved? Who's not? Hey, we've been here an hour. Nobody has offered a correction yet. So, so that becomes part of what teams are focused on is what's happening in the room in how we are having this conversation and being able to correct before they leave it. You know, every, every team can kind of change the play before the game is over. So how do, how do executive teams, how do teams, how do groups do that so they can notice the conversation before people leave the room? Is there anything we need to do differently? They need lenses. They need something that helps them see you know, to, to be able to kind of see and notice and name what's happening in how we are having this conversation, which, which is the bystand supported by that toolkit of being able to see what needs to be present in the conversation. Amy, I know you, you teach this as part of your MBA program in Harvard, and clearly you're, you're known for fearless workplaces and safety. What's the link for you in, 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 and the importance for you in teaching this, this play? Well, as I listen to Kieran describe the different moves, I think it, it's so easy to see how that kind of thoughtfulness, that kind of other-orientedness is far more likely to happen in a psychologically safe space. Right? Where, And let me put it in, in reverse. If your primary task in any given moment, whether consciously or unconsciously, is self-protection, you don't have much cognitive availability for really diagnosing what's happened and, and working as, as well as you can to move the project forward, to move the agenda forward. So we were talking earlier about the skill that's required to do structural dynamics work effectively. And I think skill is part of it, but there's also got to be that freedom to know it's okay and know it's okay to make mistakes in, you know, let's say I do what Cantor calls an oppose, that can feel quite threatening, right? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, Ooh, I think we should take it in a different direction, right? I might be saying your baby is ugly. That's not easy to say. In fact, it's almost never said in a non-psychologically safe environment. So I see psychological safety as a description of the kind of climate that we together create in which we can do the intense and productive learning oriented work of effective structural dynamics. It sounds like it's a, an emerging field that can only be, become more and more important as, as we hopefully emerge out of you know, the pandemic we're in and take the collective learning with us. Let's segue back to the, the workplace. And I, I'm interested in the emerging hybrid workplace that we're, we're sitting at the moment and the idea of that we're neither all in the office or we're neither all at home and we're trying to figure out how that emerges. Amy, let's stick with you for the moment. The, the idea of candor, the idea of transparency, the idea of not knowing, how do those traits come forward in the emerging hybrid workplace, do you think? I think, first of all, this is kind of the good news, bad news. First of all, it's even more important. Because the hybrid workplace is a new space. I mean, it's, it's a new situation, we, which means we will be navigating it together. We don't know exactly what it looks like and, and exactly how well it's going to work and what adjustments we'll have to make along the way to make sure we do our primary job, which is to serve our customers, right? to get our work done. So given the uncertainty and the novelty, that means we're going to have to be candid. We're going to have to speak up. We're going to have to talk about what's working and what isn't working. I guess the good news is it's ever more important. The bad news is I think it's harder. It's harder. It's harder to read the room. It's harder to read the room on Zoom than around the same conference table in a face-to-face -face setting. It also is challenging. We're challenged by the fact that when we talk about hybrid workplaces, we're necessarily bleeding into personal lives. If you're working from 
your place of residence, where your family is, where other personal aspects of your life are taking place. The boundary between work and personal life is minimized, it's made smaller. And that will sometimes mean we'll find ourselves having to talk about things that would in in the past not have been appropriate to talk about, you know, personal constraints around childcare, constraints around uh, your health or, or other things. So we're going to have to navigate this thoughtfully and we're going to need to respect and care about each other to do this well. I'm noticing all the leaders I'm working with, the tension between, you know, part of my role as a leader is to provide certainty. And in many aspects of our conversation at the moment, I'm completely unable to do so. Yet my teams want that more than ever. So there's a tension between what they need and what I want and what we can give. The other, the other tension is vulnerability suggests that I be open and transparent, as you said, and disclose a whole lot more than I might before. Yet there's a tipping point of vulnerability that creeps into people losing confidence in me because I might be disclosing too much and the tension between both. And I appreciate the answer. A question I want to ask you means there's no right answer to this. But do you, do you have any insight into how leaders manage those two tensions? Because it seems to be a lot more gray between which end of those polarities you lean into, etc. Number one, be aware of it. Right? Just know that if you have a mindset, which I think the industrial era left us all with, but if you have a mindset of there should not be tensions, you're in trouble. Right? You're, you're not going to do this well. So number one, recognize there are tensions. Be explicit about them. Name them. Right? Say you're there. Isn't this, this is going to be something that we have to sort out together. And I'm sure we'll make mistakes and I'm sure we'll go over too far that way or too far that way, but we'll trust each other. We'll respect each other enough to get back on track. There's that enough again. So being explicit about it, about the tension, about the novelty, number two, baby step, right? You don't try to do, you know, you don't take vast, dramatic interpersonal risks with each other in uncertain territory. You know, you say something, maybe you go over that edge a little bit and saying something personal that you would love your colleagues to understand better so that you can do your best work. And guess what? It goes well. So then we're able to just do that a little bit more as time goes on. Small experiments, learn fast, cascade, away you go. Yeah. Can we segue into leadership and followership and team membership and the interplay between those three? Dr. Paul Brown talks about the dilemma with psychological safety is who provides it and the idea of, of victimhood and the idea of I'm waiting for you to provide me my safety and all of that notion. And I know that's not where you're coming from, either of you, in your views around this. And indeed, the discipline part of psychological safety is equally important. But it, it does strike me there is a question mark around followership and teaming I have and the role of leader. And have we put the role of leader on such a high pedestal that we're forgetting the role of everybody else in the team? So I'm interested in, in your views on, on that question is, if we are trying to create an environment where we can all be at our best, who's we? I'm, I'm going to might even contradict myself here and what I'm saying, let's see what emerges. But, you know, I, I think I really support the, you know, the leader's role, particularly right now in times of crisis. I think people do look to, you know, leaders to help them, you know, in, in, in some way. And that's a tension because, you know, leaders can be kind of set up to have the answers, the very thing that we want to avoid. And yet I think there is an opportunity for leaders to be able to create that, that space for people to be comfortable, be responsible. And yet we want to avoid that hub and spoke where team members do look to the leader to solve more than is their fair share of what's responsible in a team. And I think this, this is where we, we do need to find ways where how to create an environment that's psychologically safe is transferable and that the team members can you know, behave in that way when the leader isn't present. So, so a lot of what happens in teaming is when the team is present and the leader is present and the leader can play a key role in setting up the work and responding productively and showing up in the room. And that, that's, that's great. And I think we do need to focus on that. And, you know, the CEO isn't going to be present when the CIO and the CFO are working on something critical. So what is it that we can equip team members with so that that consciousness is transferable across any members of the team? Because so much happens now in 
dyads within the team in subgroups that members of a team need to be responsible and have the toolkit to have the conversations that they need to have with all members of the team. And, and that over time helps the team get to a far greater place of effectiveness and avoids this trap of the leader being set up as being that the team is dependent on the leader to create that space. And I think that's particularly difficult. So leaders will share and team members will share that the dynamic is different when the leader is there or not there. And, and yet I think that's the work that we can do is to equip team members with the toolkit to engage directly at a peer-to-peer level. Yeah, I, I like to make a distinction between leader and leadership. And leadership is an activity and leader is a role or a position. And anyone can exercise leadership. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyone can do and say things that influence others in a positive way. And when they're doing that, they're exercising leadership. And with respect to psychological safety, when someone asks a sincere question of a colleague, they're in that moment creating some psychological safety because they've given them voice. They've given them a small invitation to speak up about something that they're thinking about. So I think people, I think you're right. I think the question is is the right question because recognizes that, in fact, we have to stay away from that trap of, of the victim mentality. We have to stay away from the trap that says, I have to wait for someone else to create psychological safety for me. And in fact, why don't I try to create some right now for someone else? And then if, if we're all sort of collectively doing our part in creating that kind of learning-oriented environment, we will have produced it. So it's, it strikes me that the, the only thing that we can predict going forward is that the world will remain pretty unpredictable <laughs> and everything else will just happen depending on what happens. So therefore, how do we start preempting that we're, we're going to stay in a, an unpredictable world and how do we start building up the capability in our teams to navigate unpredictability? So I'm thinking of dialogue, I'm thinking of situation humility, I'm thinking of the skills that relate to great communication and, and great relation ability. What's your view, guys, on how organizations or teams or, or, or anybody in the team can start building those skill sets? It's about getting the skill. I don't know if this is a skill or first it's a, it's a mindset, which is and maybe it does start with a mindset, which is akin to a learning mindset, a growth mindset. But a, a mindset that gets comfortable being uncomfortable, it gets comfortable with not knowing um, that's not easy for us. We have a strong preference for certainty. Uh, we, as a species, right? We have a strong preference to know what's going on, to feel that we have a clear line of sight on, on on what's coming next. And because that's just not going to be a very good assumption anymore, we have to we have to shift. That means we have to change. Change is never easy. I think the thing that helps is that we have to do it together. And I think we have to we have to avoid falling into the trap of feeling lonely about this, right? This is going to be hard. This is an adventure, but we're going to do it together. And it, it's much like Kieran's teams that did this incredibly challenging work and felt great about it and felt energized by it, not depleted by it. I think we can analogously feel energized by the challenge of teaming up to kind of navigate the uncertain path that lies ahead. And a build on that is, is I think, starting with, with a conversation around, you know, the, the why. Why is it so much more important now for the organization to be very conscious and deliberate about designing in experiences that work for its, for its people over the long term? My experience is that leaders are far more aware of the importance of creating an environment of teaming that's high in psychological safety that supports well-being in complex times, which, which are right now. I think that that's a really important initial conversation is around the context that establishes the why. You know, diversity inclusion currently is, is one of those significant kind of reasons that, you know, organizations are, are very, you know, onto. And how can we execute our multi-year complex strategy if we don't have people talking and connecting. You know, that conversation also then leads, okay, so how are we going to build it in? So, you know, what leaders of teams, what do leaders of teams need to know? 
Where are the critical teams? You can begin to map the system and have leaders having conversations and exploring where is it that we really need the requisite level of psychological safety and conversational intelligence, you know, for us to achieve this thing that we've just said is so important to us. I think that then can help um, identify whether it's, you know, leadership development or team effectiveness programs and what is it that we really want our leaders to be aware of and doing. And that's what I think is really important is, is the why that also feeds what it is that we need to be doing together, you know, to achieve that. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I know the way I work, you know, myself and, and, I, and I do share, I think we, we have an unmet need as people to, to connect together and enjoy the connection and achieve great things. So, you know, there's also organizations that just at a very human level, you know, have that really important pursuit of it's it's kind of the right thing to do isn't it to create space for people to connect achieve great things and actually at the end of it to go wasn't that fantastic coming towards the end of this this has been a great conversation for anyone listening to this who is new to the topic of psychological safety or relationship ability and this is resonating for them as an important area what would be the first takeaway or the first thing you'd want them to be thinking about or exploring after this interview in terms of where they can go to learn more or, or think more about this as a researcher i spend a lot of my time writing it's torture sometimes to try to get it right but once done I'm always eager to have readers and have people learn. I think I can be more clear in writing than in out loud forums like this. So, so the Fears Organization Creating Cycles of Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, Growth would be one great starting point, Amy. Absolutely. And Kieran, is there any, any, any questions or thoughts or reflections you, you'd be recommending for someone to take away from this as their first next step? Yeah, look, the first next step would be anybody listening, just to pause and just check in and, and look inward and just connect with how important it is from a life well lived perspective to be thinking and connecting to relationship. How, how important it is, you know, ask how conscious am I? Am I working on how to be the best version of me in relationship with others? What would that look like? How might it help me with life well lived? How might it help me in the workplace also. I think that moment and pause can set somebody forward that they'll discover resources that can help them. Fantastic. Amy and Kieran, thank you so much for making time for us today. As someone who specializes in, in teams, I've leaned on both of your views and your experiences many times over the years and, and really valued your insights. And uh, I know that the teams I've worked with who have in, in their own words, become very effective, have had high degrees of safety amongst themselves and discipline along the way. So it's a uh, both sides of the coin. Appreciate your insights to both of you. Thanks, Pat. Thanks so much, Amy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs, or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.